Hello and welcome back to Young Nostalgia, the podcast that takes a trip down memory lane from two guys that never lived it. I'm Nolan and beside me is Ben and we thank you so much for joining us as we talk about our passion for the past while being young at heart. Today we're bringing you a brand new episode coming at you with uh, the continuation of our Mafia special episodes coming to you. Uh, We got Charles Lucky Luciano, who we're hitting on today. We kind of hinted on him last week when we talked about his um, influential uh, power and you know the, the, the name that the Luciano uh, family had throughout organized crime, especially when it came to uh, making the commission. But uh, before too long, I guess I should ask how Ben's doing uh, before he falls asleep. <laughs> ben, how you doing, dude? <laughs> uh, it's been a pretty good day. How you doing? Not too bad. Always a good day, no matter what, when we're when we're back together recording this. Um, a few shout-outs before we dive in. Um, we saw that we have 10 downloads and listens in Australia. Um, so, mates out there, thanks so much for giving us the love. It's, it's great to see that we're spreading out. Um, we also have huge spikes in Maryland and uh, New York, so we appreciate the East Coast as well. It's great to have you guys here. Um, and spread the word to your friends if you like what you hear. Uh, you know, we just want to keep on growing and, and have uh, the Nostalgia Lovers Pack grow more and more. Also, if you haven't noticed, we updated our cover art, and that's thanks to Ben's uh, little brother, Andy. Thanks so much, dude. He's a loyal listener, too, but uh, we absolutely loved it. Um, and uh, we think it could be our show art for the foreseeable future. I know we've changed a few times, each one um, that we love, and it keeps on getting better and better. But it's great to have something that kind of <laughs> embodies who we are um, with this show, something that's you know still ambiguous, but it encompasses a lot of what we do. Yep. And, you know, he came up to me and asked me, he's like, hey, you know, I got a graphic design class. And he basically just asked if, you know, he could make us some new uh, cover art. And, you know, if we, I told him, you know, if we liked it, we'd use it. If not, you know, it's, (laughs) you know, keep working towards it. But (laughs) we ended up loving it. And, you know, so that's, that's our cover art now. And so it's, it's, uh, it's nice to have a, uh, Feedback from listeners. Yeah, definitely. And if you Even look if he's in the, my brother. If you if you look <laughs> if you look in the top right hand corner and zoom in all the way, you'll see credit Andy Somsack. <laughs> That'd be actually pretty funny. Maybe he did hide stuff in there. I don't know. I should have checked it a little bit more closely. Yeah. That's the kind of probably, thing he would do. He probably hid something naughty in there. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> all right man we got we got we got a long show not necessarily a long show but we've got a lot of stuff coming at you guys uh, might as well start right now um so diving into his early life big guy you want to take it over sure uh today we're going to be talking about charles lucky luciano um, a little bit of backstory about his early life he was born salvador uh luciana in sicily in 1897 um before his family ended up uh coming to the United States in 1906. Uh, he really didn't speak any English at all, and so <laughs> therefore he had quite a bit of uh, trouble in school. Um, and, you know, subsequently he ended up not really taking any sort of interest in school and preferred to learn how to live life on the street. You know, he, got, he, he uh, had a higher value on his street smarts rather than his school smarts. And... Uh, and that's really kind of where he got into 
the 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 mob the mafia kind of world uh one of his first rackets was <laughs> getting his schoolmates to pay for protection um <laughs> and, and early on if if they wouldn't you know if they wouldn't give up any money uh not only would he not protect them but he might beat them up himself just for not getting paid um <laughs> Pay me to not kick your ass. Right. So, I mean, you know, you can just see right off the bat he was off to a fantastic start. (laughs) Uh, In 1914, he was, he actually dropped out of school at a very young age. So he was, you know, that uh, eighth grade freshman uh, in high school kind of age. I don't, I guess, I don't know. I guess it would be called that back then. I'm not really sure. Eighth and ninth grade. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, he was probably yeah he was probably freshman freshman in high school, mm-hmm. right? Um, and he di- started working uh, in a hat shop delivering hats. Uh, <laughs> May <laughs> I, I like... take your hat, sir? <laughs> <laughs> oh, our SpongeBob fans will uh, get a kick out of that. Uh, <laughs> um, where was I? Oh, he was and he was making seven dollars a week um but it was very shortly after that this is for a relatively short period of time um they, until he won ended up winning 244 dollars in a dice game um then he kind of realized that you know this whole working a job in the real world kind of thing was uh you know that wasn't really to his liking so he quit and started uh earning money on the street <laughs> and uh <laughs> that's where he you know he he'd been kind of getting in and out of trouble that kind of thing you know uh, up until then but uh this is where he really started you know kind of gaining a uh powerful friends and a following um while he was still a teenager um he ended up getting in pretty good friends with a uh Jewish gang members uh Meyer Lansky and his associate Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, um, who would later on in life become, you know, one of or a couple of his most important allies. Um, and he also became affiliated with the uh, Giuseppe Joe the Boss Masiera uh, criminal operation around this time as well. And so there's kind of a, a, a menagerie of different uh, characters and influences around this time early in life. And that kind of, you know, set him down this track for the rest of his life, basically big um, time. And and what's so cool is that when he met like Meyer Lansky, Meyer Lansky um, and Bugsy Siegel is one of those things where it was like, they all have something to learn from each other. Like Meyer Lansky, he was so good with numbers, analyzing things, predicting how things could go in the future. Bugsy was mm-hmm. such, he was just a powerhouse. He was known for his violence and, you know, just, uh, just big time. He, he's the one that you, you would put a hit for and he would go and do the hit for you. Yeah. He was the muscle. Exactly. That's, yep. that's exactly what I was trying to say, but I yep. said it in 20 too many words. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, you got the point across. <laughs> Pull the bed. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I'm known for. Um, it was, you know, right around this time in his life, I mean, he's still really young, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old. Um, 
that he actually got involved with dealing drugs, um, which was his really his first major run-in with the law in 1916. Um, and he was actually caught selling heroin and served six months um, at a reformatory for the crime. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, later on throughout his life, um, through 1936, Luciano was ended up being arrested about 25 times in all. That's ridiculous. I mean, he was arrested for selling heroin when he was 16 years old. 16 oh, yeah. years old. I, yeah. <laughs> you know, I guess, you know, you know, with his kind of start, I mean, he started young, so everything kind of started, everything else started coming in young, too. Jeez. All right. Carrying on with his mob affiliation, kind of where he got his roots. Um, and 19, by 1920, Luciano had met many future mafia leaders, including uh, Vito Genovese, Frank Costello, and his longtime friend and future business partner through the Five Points Gang. So the Five Points Gang was actually a gang that uh, Luciano founded while he was in his teenage years after he dropped out of school. So that same year in 1920, um, Lower Manhattan gang boss Joe Masseria, um, right? did I say that right? Masseria? I believe so. All yep. right. Um, recruited Luciano as one of his gunmen. Around that same time, uh, Luciano uh, had and his close associates started working with, for gambler Arnold the Brain Rothstein. So <laughs> Rothstein was somebody who like immediately saw the potential of... Um, the prohibition and the bootleg of alcohol. So really he kind of brought his educated expertise in business and kind of underground crime syndicate to Luciano mm -hmm. and kind of built up his resume. So through bootlegging, Luciano Costello and Genovese started their own operation and financed by Rothstein. Um, and so really that's, that's what really got Luciano into the business of organized crime um, you know, in, in underground dealings. So five years later, by oh yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, yeah, all I was gonna say is, you know, up until then, he had already been involved with a lot of things, but for the most part, it was, you know, he had him and his friends, but it was more of just a small time, uh, you know, individual kind of thing. And this is where he really started getting into, like you said, the uh, the organized crime kind of deal. You know, the the syndicate, that sort of thing. Exactly, exactly, and and, and being surrounded by such influential names in the future only helped his cause. Oh, yeah. By 1925, Luciano was grossing over $12 million a year. He had a net income of around $4 million each year. Get this, after the cost of bribing politicians as well as police. <laughs> $8 million went into bribing authorities so he can get away with what he was getting away with. Well, oh, you got to spend money God. to make money. That's true. That's true. <laughs> oh, geez. Luciano and his partners ran the largest bootlegging operation in New York, and it actually extended all the way to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was a very, very powerful man, um, you know, in his early 20s, probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, 1925, you know, born in 1897. So he was, you know, 28 years old. Um already pulling in four million dollars a year you know in 1925 that in is a 1925 gigantic amount of money <laughs> <laughs> jeez jeez 
you know, you've got a pretty solid operation going when you start, you know, <laughs> getting that influential. Um, <laughs> We're in the wrong business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's no money in podcasting. <laughs> no, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, there is actually, but that's besides the point. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the Cattle Maurice um, War. Uh, this is... Luciano uh, ended up becoming a, uh, uh, it was very soon afterwards, uh, you know, this, you know, becoming, uh, you know, being part of this bootlegging operation, um, that he became a top aide in the uh, uh, (laughs) Maserias criminal organization through running bootleg operations. Um, He began cultivating ties with other younger mobsters who had been born in Italy, and were just starting to begin their careers in the U.S., um, and they were known as the Young Turks. Uh, the Young Turks believed that their boss's greed and conservatism were keeping them poor while the Irish and Jewish gangs got rich. So they were kind of pushing back a little bit against the, uh, you know, the, uh, the other bosses uh, that were, you know, they had been around for quite a while. Um, yeah, the, the, the interesting thing that I was reading about is that Maseria, when uh, Luciano was underneath him, Maseria actually started his kind of organized crime ways in Italy and brought it over to the U.S. So really mm-hmm. what's happening is that the Young Turks are just like, no, business in Italy like that cannot be done this way in U.S. because it's just different. Like, it's just different. Right. The ways of thinking and everything like that in organized crime is different in the U.S. than it was in Italy. So then that's why there was so much pushback with the younger generation. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, you, you look at it, there's kind of the, the United States didn't have those, you know, centuries of the Italian or, or the Sicilian culture, um, you know, that they're building off of their, you know, the coming here. And it, it, it just has to be a new breed because it's so, uh, you know, I mean, that culture is coming with the immigrants, but it's not the overall culture of the countryside, you know, not like it is in the, back in the old country. Uh-huh. Um, Luciano wanted to use the lessons he learned from uh, Rothstein to turn their gang activities into criminal empires. Um, his vision was to form a national crime syndicate in which uh, Italian, Jewish, and Irish gangs could all pretty much work together. They pool resources and they use their strengths um, to torn to, excuse me, turn organized crime into a lucrative business for everyone involved. Um, and, you know, that's kind of, uh, it's, it, you don't really think about that too much because, you know, you hear a lot of s- some of the big major conflicts were these rival gangs that were generally um, mafias from different foreign backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's kind of, completely contrasting with uh what one of uh luciano's biggest visions was to really bring everyone together and then you build off of everyone's strengths and weaknesses to have just a a truly unstoppable mafia basically (laughs) (laughs) um in october in october of 1929 uh, luciano was forced into a limousine at gunpoint by three men uh he was beaten stabbed and that before being dumped on a beach on staten island uh he survived the ordeal but was uh 
he ended up having several long lasting uh lasting effects of this attack uh with a uh he had severe scars left on his face uh he also had a droopy eye that you know he carried with him for the rest of his life um the most important consequences of this episode was the press coverage that uh went along with it um and it really kind of introduced him to the public and you know that's not you know if you in your in that line of business you know you're not really wanting uh, a huge amount of notoriety, you know, I mean, it's a lot of that stuff you're trying to keep on the DL as much as possible. Yeah. And yeah. you're not trying That's to true. have your name thrown around all over the place. You know, I mean, I'm <laughs> sure there's plenty of other guys who once, uh, you know, you get big enough and it, you just don't care at that point cause you're untouchable. But mm-hmm. you know, especially if you're still rising, you know, you, you just gotta, <laughs> just gotta lay low and got to keep your name out of the press that's true that's true um in early 1931 luciano decided to switch loyalties and eliminate Maseria. um (laughs) in a secret deal with maranzano uh luciano agreed to engineer Maseria's death in return for receiving Maseria's rackets and becoming maranzano's second in command um you know, if you've looked into any of mob stories or movies or history or anything like that at all, I mean, there's so much of this going on. Uh, loyalties flip-flopping, you know, whoever's cutting the best deal. You know, that's, mm-hmm. you know, it, you can't trust anyone, really. Not at all. Um, on April, no. <laughs> uh, on <laughs> April 15th, Luciano invited Masseria and two other associates to lunch in a Coney Island restaurant. Um, they ended up playing cards after their meal. Um, and this is kind of going along with uh, a mob legend um, at this point. But uh, Luciano then went to the bathroom. Uh, and while he was in the bathroom, four gunmen, Genovese, uh, Anastasia Adonis and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel um, ended up walking into the dining room, shot and killed Masseria and his two men. Um, at this point, then Luciano ended up taking over the gang and becoming Maranzano's lieutenant, which pretty much brought an end to the Castellamarice War. Dang. Now, I don't know how you can't get more um, Hollywood-esque or, you know, mafia movie-esque <laughs> Then, you know, the guy rising to power gets up off the table. I I can see this as like an Italian restaurant. They have those plastic table covers of the black and white checkers. You know what I mean? They had their suits on. They had their handkerchiefs in. And he just gets up, goes to the bathroom. And then, like, you you see a scene of, of Luciano just, like, washing his hands. Cuts into the main dining room, and here comes Bugsy, Anastasia, uh, Odinus, and Genovese walking in with Tommy guns with long black trench coats and the just gun down Maseria. Yeah. Bam. You know, <laughs> and all you see is, you know, him in the bathroom washing his hands in the mirror, and you hear what is all going on in the background. And yep. I don't know. Yeah. Then, it, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's a good call. That is totally Hollywood right there. Um, <laughs> And then Luciano comes out of the bathroom and then just throws his handkerchief on top of Masseria's face, walks out the door, end scene. That is, that part is 100% 
Nolan speculation. But, uh... <laughs> uh, anyway, that's what I would have done. Never mind. I shouldn't say that. All right. Um, so Luciano's reign of power. So really, after the killing of Maseria, Luciano really took the bull by the horns. He became a dominant crime boss. Uh, throughout the U.S., he controlled policy, activities, and rules of mafia nation nationwide. Luciano had his own crime family, the Luciano family, um, and you know their, their rackets kind of centered around um, New York City, uh, including illegal gambling, extortion, bookmaking, loan sharking, as well as drug trafficking, going back to Luciano's uh, roots of heroin. So Luciano became a very influential um, part of the labor union, and he controlled the Manhattan waterfront, as well as garbage hauling, construction, um, garment district businesses, as well as trucking. I mean, Luciano had his hands on so much infrastructure within New York City. It was insane. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at, you know, look at everything he controlled, it was basically everything. You know, he, he basically had the city in a death grip and he, he just he just controlled it you know anything that he wanted to do he he did it yeah i know and it was just like <laughs> oh my gosh i mean he he took what he learned from um rothstein and rothstein really like taught him how to live high society life like how mm-hmm. to exist in plain sight when it came to organized crime yeah he he's the one who ended up bringing him up out of the uh the the small crimes the the low level kind of stuff up into the um you know the <laughs> the high society kind of crimes uh <laughs> yeah you know where you know it, it, you know stuff is planned out it's well orchestrated um you know you're not making split decisions of just to do stuff you know it's planned out everything is done for a reason uh, and yeah. that that's really when he start gaining huge amounts of success definitely <clears throat> All right, so moving on, um, you know, since Luciano was so influential with uh, the the rules and activities and the way mafia was like the the modern era of mafia in Luciano's time was run, he was a big believer in certain policies of Maranzano's, but also not. So he would change things. So he wasn't a believer um, in certain higher up positions that, like, if you think of it as like a king or a queen, where it was like a figurehead. Mm-hmm. of the family he got rid of that because he just thought it brought unwanted attention to the family it was unneeded but he was a big believer in Amerta, which is the oath of silence to protect the families from legal prosecution as well as um maranzano's structure of five crime families within new york um you know a couple of his top associates was advocating for the known term of a made man mm-hmm. when you become part of the mafia Luciano wanted to get rid of that because he just felt like it was dumb. It was a dumb stigma. But his top associates was kind of like, no, we need to keep it because it. when we bring in new family members, they need something that would keep them loyal to the family. And so when you become a made man of a certain family, it's kind of almost a, a, a promise, like a, a small time promise to that family because they mm-hmm. made you a made man. Right. Um, okay, so Luciano actually uh, elevated his most trusted Italian associates while um, in this such power state uh, to high-level positions uh, with, uh, in what was now the Luciano crime family. So we had Genovese. He became an underboss. The Costello. Um, Costello became a con- consigliere, uh, which is, con- I believe— Consigliere. Consigliere. 
Consulary. 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 I'm bad at this. Well, consulary. Just like, 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 like in The Godfather, Tom was the the consulary to the family. Oh, okay. I see. I see. That was his position. Okay. Okay. All right. And then we, you know, we talked about uh, his longtime associates, Maya Lansky and Bugsy Siegel. But due to them not being Italians, neither man could actually be have official positions within any mafia family. However, Lansky was a top advisor to Luciano, as well as Bugsy, always remaining a trusted associate throughout his powerful um, reign. So yeah, I mean, Lu- you know, even though they weren't. <clears throat> You know, they, they weren't part of the family. They weren't Italians. You know, he still, that's where he got started with those guys. So it's not like he could just boot them out because they didn't fit the bill. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, they had been with him basically from the beginning. <clears throat> exactly. And, and I, th- I think it's so interesting how these three guys always went together when it came to power <laughs> within Mafia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, <clears throat> I almost said uh, stuck together, but I don't really want to say that, but they were there really wasn't anything that happened without uh, involvement from all three of those guys. Yeah. And, you know, they yeah. all had their, they all had their strengths and weaknesses. And that's, you know, probably another reason why they, they stuck together and they had so much success. Exactly. Team talking in the, yeah, I know <laughs> makes the dream work. <laughs> <laughs> talking about Luciano's ideal of, of mafia would have been like, uh, pooling the resources and kind of going off of everyone's strengths to make the mafia as strong mm-hmm. as it possibly could be. So while Luciano was at the top, he set up the commission to serve as the governing body for organized crime. So this actually happened after the Catamarese War in 1931. So it was designed to settle all disputes and decided which families controlled which territories as well as um, being like the commission was called Luciano's greatest innovation to uh, the mafia world. So breaking down the commission a little bit, all commission members were supposed to retain the same power and had one vote. But the funny thing is, Luciano had <laughs> had his hand behind everything. He, you know, There's always an alternative motive that would put Luciano on top. So in the end, Luciano and his allies, allies always controlled the commission and the decisions that were made. Mm-hmm. So here's here's an example of that um, as a story. So the commission's first test came four years after its creation in 1935. Uh, it ordered gang boss Dutch Dutch Schultz to drop his plans to murder special special prosecutor Thomas E. Dewey. Luciano argued that a Dewey assassination would then precipitate a massive law enforcement crackdown on the organized crime syndicate. So a defiant Schultz ended up just telling the commission, I'm going to kill Dewey. It doesn't matter what you say, what you do. Um, It was either kill Dewey or his assistant, David Ash. So in the next three days, the murder was planned out. So in response, the commission actually quickly arranged Schultz's murder on October 24th, 1935. Before he killed Dewey or uh, Ash, Schultz was then murdered in a tavern in Newark, New Jersey. And so it was pretty much, you know, the commission was set up and it was like, do whatever you want, whatever you think is best, as long as it goes along with what I want. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> it's so it's so funny because I mean Luciano was the one that argued against it. Because I mean, you know what? Right. Everyone would be on you on your side if you make enough sense. And it's you know what? He, Luciano had enough to persuade everyone. Like, no, it's not a good idea to kill Dewey, and everyone was behind him. So the commission obviously murdered Schultz. Mm-hmm. It. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like, I'm, <laughs> the whole. The whole thing, you know, you can just see it happening, you know. It, you could, no matter how you spin it, what, how you, uh, you promote it, you market it, you know, it sounds like a really good idea. All the, these families are going to have, be able to work together. It's going to solve so many problems. There's going to be peace. But I'll be darn, you know, the mafia boss that come up with the idea, he ends up pretty much running the show at the end of the day anyway. <laughs> you know, like who'd have thought yeah. that was gonna happen? <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, moving on a little bit to his la- uh, a little bit later in his life, um, in 1936, uh, he and eight members of his vice racket um, ended up being brought to trial um, in that May of 1936. Um, and then they ended up being convicted of extortion and prostitution charges in, later on in June. Um, he ended up being sentenced to 30 to 50 years in jail. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> he was sent to the uh, uh, Clinton Correctional Facility um, in New York, which, you know, this facility was actually nicknamed Siberia um, just because of how remote the prison one the prison was and uh, you know it was extremely close far north and close to the canadian border uh luciano uh he did try to appeal his case but you know the court wasn't having it and his conviction uh still stood Uh, while he was in prison this now this part is pretty is is pretty interesting Uh, while luciano was in prison uh it was right around uh it was during the time of world war ii um, and he was offered, he actually offered to help in the war effort um, by using some of his criminal connections in Italy to help advance the cause of the Allies. Um, and he ended up striking an agreement with uh, the Department of the Navy through his associate, My- Meyer Lansky, once again, here <laughs> he comes, um, in order to protect New York's harbors from Axis U-boats. Um, and, you know, kind of going further with this, you know, I, as as part of the deal and, you know, just like everything mob related, you kind of have to always look for the ulterior motive, um, for his work in the war effort, Luciano received parole and a deportation order. Um, he ended up going back to Italy, uh, briefly, and then he ended up traveling, uh, and living in Cuba for some time. Um, and imagine this. He Along the way, he ends up meeting some of his old cohorts, Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel, while out of the country. <clears throat> well, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, every section we can hit uh, in this show prep we've got here, uh, there's always uh, a Lansky or Siegel involved um in 1947 
the Cuban government ended up sending Luciano back to Italy, uh, where he remained under close surveillance to make sure he wasn't coming back and getting into any more trouble uh, in Cuba. Mm-hmm. He actually wasn't even allowed to leave Naples, um, where he ended up spending the rest of his life. Um, and, you know, according to, to some rumors, or local rumors around the area, um, he actually still had a very heavy hand into the narcotics trafficking of the area, which, you know, imagine that, you know, that's kind of what he did to begin with. And that's what he's doing at the end of his life. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of interesting as well. He actually, um, he right at towards the end of his life, he was actually kind of starting to set up, um, interviews and reports and that sort of stuff of you know sharing his inside details of his life and basically just his life story um in the mob um it was also kind of a weird twist he ended up suffering um a fatal heart attack at the naples airport in january 1962 um and he had been there to meet with a film and television producer to you know to document um document his life and you know his life that he spent in organized crime uh-huh um <clears throat> his uh funeral in naples uh ended up having you know a crowd of hundreds of people um um before you know just in naples before his body was brought back to the united states where he was ended up being buried in the family vault at saint john cemetery in queens new york um, and you know, he ended up spending a great majority of his life as the very notorious Charles Lucky Luciano. Um, he ended up being put to rest, um, with his parents, uh, uh, under his actual given name, Salvatore Luciano. <clears throat> oh my God. So, it's, it's just so interesting that to think about the influence that he had hundreds of people there at his uh, at his uh at his funeral yeah and, and that was out of the country where he spent most of his life and where he was most notorious yeah yeah and mm-hmm. and how interesting it would have been if you know we did have a documentary of luciano it's one of those things where luciano was probably just i mean he had so many stories so many behind the scene things of what happened to you know murders of other mobsters that might not have had a, a proper ending or you know how was interacting with Genovese and Lansky like what was the personality of everyone in the same room it would have just been yeah, well, really interesting to, to hear about well how much more information in history would there have been if he did get a chance to talk to him and you know have this stuff documented you know how much more stuff would we have found out about because mm-hmm. you uh-huh. know there's all kinds of stuff uh you know you know underground dealings and all of this stuff that um you you pretty much know happened but you know it's not documented so you know no one talks about it it's not you know it's it's not tallied up in his in his rap sheet <laughs> yeah i know it's um, it's insane yeah it is kind of a weird twist of fate that he ended up dying before on the way you know to start you know putting out this information. <laughs> All right, so wrapping this up here, just a quick tidbit about his legacy. So the criminal empire that Luciano created still continues 
to this day. So his former underboss, Vito Genovese, eventually took over and the entirety of Luciano's organization and became the head of what is now referred to as the Genovese crime family. So Vito Genovese actually passed away in 1969. But if you search, you know, Vito Genovese or, you know, follow the links on uh, Luciano's, you know, Wikipedia page or something like that, you'll see a full laundry list of um, the past, you know, powerful figures in the Genovese and Luciano family from who's active now, who was, um, active, like presumptive active, and you know, okay, yeah, it so doesn't, it doesn't ever stop, it's continually going, definitely, definitely. Or like mm-hmm. acting in since somebody got arrested, so this person acts in as the head boss, <laughs> but then when they come back, then they it, it's it's insane, it's insane, it, it's really cool <laughs> to look at. It oh, is, it so. is, you know, it, it's you know, when you think of the mob and the mafia, that's what you. That's what you picture in your mind is the kind of uh, 20s, 30s, 40s. But, you know, I mean, it has changed over the years. But, you know, for the most part, it's, <laughs> you know, it might not be out in, as, out in the open as much as it used to be. But it's it's still there and still extremely strong. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I don't think they'll ever <laughs> I don't think they'll ever stop. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> it's you know, it's so ingrained into uh into culture at this point that yeah you know it's just it's almost a way of life yep it's just another style of criminal really (laughs) uh that's a wrap thanks so much for joining us here young nostalgia (laughs) this week as we continue our journey through retro pop culture and bringing you more of the some mafia special it was awesome getting to dive in and and getting to know lucky luciano a little bit more and and the kind of hand that he had in so much things um, as always, if you enjoy what you uh, if you enjoy what you hear, leave a kind review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We are out there on Podbean, our host site. We're out there on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, as well as Stitcher. And we actually discovered a place that we uh, are on now called Player FM. They get our feed all up to date. Um, everything is you know from what I've seen, it's it's pretty classy. Uh, looking website as well as android app i don't think we they have anything for ios just yet but hey if uh you're a player fm listener thanks for listening and uh if you'd like to check it out we're on there as well if you got a topic uh for the future or you'd like to be a guest with ben and i give us an email at young nostalgia 2017 at gmail.com but uh hey i wonder what we're going to call this episode uh. yeah i don't know i haven't worked on that yet <laughs> Well, I guess by the time you listen to this, you already know that we came up with some really cool name. Um, but uh, hey, it's I'll been a I'll do my best to come up with something witty. <laughs> As we always say here on Young Nostalgia. Keep the bottles empty and the ashtrays full. Take care, everybody. <laughs>